The infinite monkey theorem states that a monkey hitting keys at random on a typewriter keyboard for an infinite amount of time will almost surely type a given text, such as the complete works of William Shakespeare. In this context, almost surely is a mathematical term with a precise meaning, and the monkey is not an actual monkey, but a metaphor for an abstract device that produces an endless random sequence of letters and symbols. One of the earliest instances of the use of the monkey metaphor is that of French mathematician Emile Borel in 1913, but the first instance may even be earlier. The relevance of the theorem is questionable. The probability of a universe full of monkeys typing a complete work such as Shakespeare's Hamlet is so tiny that the chance of it occurring during a period of time hundreds of thousands of orders of magnitude longer than the age of the universe is extremely low but technically not zero. It should also be noted that real monkeys don't produce uniformly random output, which means that an actual monkey hitting keys for an infinite amount of time has no statistical certainty of ever producing any given text. And thus, this is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times? You stupid monkeys. Hello and good morning. It's Monday. I'm William Morgan and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. Today is the 26th day of October, 2015, and this is our 202nd broadcast. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at Syncbook. Today, we shall begin with Flubart and remind you that God is in the details. But actually, it's Halloween week, and I think it's the devil in the details that we'll be considering. And so today, while we are varying our excesses, we're going to reconnect with the guest from our Christmas 2014 show to once again celebrate a great beast. This morning, 42 Minutes, will explore Richard Kaczynski's Billionth Monkey. It's like a meme come true. Professor Niels Belanger is having the week from hell. The chair of his department has quit. The cute waitress at the Café du Monde won't speak to him. And now one of his students is trying to kill him. Belanger has stumbled into the deadly fantasy world of Nicholas Young, a partying frat boy whose unhealthy obsession with acting out urban legends has gone just a teensy bit over to the dark side. Everything changes when Belanger encounters the most unusual woman he has ever met, a wildly nonconformist goth who technically shouldn't exist. Yet the fact that she does forces him to accept that something much bigger and stranger is warping the shop-worn fabric of reality. But are the two of them enough to stop a millennial underachiever from impossibly destroying the world? Find out with Richard Kaczynski, American writer, musician, research scientist, and lecturer in the fields of social psychology, metaphysical beliefs, and new religious movements. He is known for his biography, Père du Rabo, The Life of Aleister Crowley, published by North Atlantic Books in 2010 and acclaimed by the Times Literary Supplement as the major biography to date of Crowley, oh, Crowley, the Great Beast. 
We were pleased to host him last Christmas for episode 164, and you can find more information about him and his latest book with in-depth explanations of the pop culture and urban legend references at his new website, thebillionthmonkey.com. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Kaczynski back to the show. Good morning, Richard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good morning. What a great introduction. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Okay, so let's just start with, uh, I recently flew to the Midwest, and I can probably empathize with you. Someone said, are you reading the Unabomber on this plane? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I get that a lot. Um, Not so much, but uh, I I do have a uh, funny story about that uh, when I was teaching evidence-based medicine to uh, medical students, and uh, I often would get that question, like, am I related? And so I would open all my lectures with a picture of me and the artist's sketch of the Unabomber, assuring them that I am not the same person, and it is therefore okay to ask questions. And I don't think they were actually seriously afraid of asking questions, but they did remember my name. (laughs) And, of course, I think the last time we talked before we went on air, uh, you said that he he may have be- become disgruntled because everyone was pronouncing his name incorrectly. It, it could be because I mean, as as another Kaczynski or Kaczynski, um, I'm used to having my name pronounced all kinds of ways, and as such, I'm, I'm personally not hung up on it. But uh, you never know, a disgruntled Kaczynski out there might that might be enough to drive him <laughs> to send crazy packages through the mail. Yes. Yes, or you could always refute it and say, no, that's that's Kaczynski. I'm Kaczynski. There you go. There you go. Okay. And then since it's Halloween, I think, you know, to begin the show properly, we need to start with your pumpkin carving. What is the deal with your your pumpkin carving? This isn't, you're not an amateur at this point. Well, I wouldn't. I don't know if I call myself a professional. There, there are people who just do like amazing, you know, 3D carvings out of pumpkins, and I'm not anywhere in that class. But um, I guess it's 20 some years ago now. You know, those pumpkin kits came out, and um, you know, they just, you know, they I had fun with those, and they were very cutesy sorts of things to carve. But I kind of thought, well, you know, given the way these patterns work, it would be easy enough for me to create my own patterns to work from. And so I started doing my own custom pumpkin carvings, you know, basically the, just the 2D kind of thing where you just kind of cutting, you know, detailed holes out of pumpkins for light to shine through to kind of do, give this, like, negative effect. And um, off to the races. So every year I've tried to do uh, or to select um, subjects for my pumpkins. You know, I do maybe three or four a year. They take about four hours a piece to do. So, you know, I, there's a limit how many I can realistically knock out uh, around Halloween. But I try to pick subjects that are kind of relevant to pop culture or kind of scary or timely. So I've done pumpkins of, you know, the X-Files. I've often done an Aleister Crowley pumpkin um, just because it's Halloween. That's also the month of his birthday. And, you know, what could be scarier for Halloween than Aleister Crowley, the Great Beast? Um, yeah, you know, and so every year I just yeah you know, I kind of look at like what's what's the popular movies or pop culture or media things going on and you know see which ones lend themselves to a, carve, a pumpkin carving. And and so you also have a website that tracks all these different pumpkins. Yes, I do. And what 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 kind of pumpkins have you carved this year? or Have you done this yet? 
Um, I haven't yet, but I am contemplating doing something from the upcoming Star Wars movie, because that's going to be a big deal. Um, also thinking about uh, doing one for the lead character, the, the android from Ex Machina, and uh, maybe you know maybe the Babadook. That might it's a little bit easy, um, but it would be distinctive. And I'm also contemplating um, doing something, you know, if I can make it work, from The Billionth Monkey. The Billionth Monkey, yes. Okay, and so uh, did I pronounce the main character's or the, the protagonist's name right? Is it Belanger? Well, it's funny because I was, as you were saying that, I was recalling our, our last interview where we talked about the pronunciation of Crowley's name. So is it Crowley or is it Crowley? And it turns out it is Crowley. Um, I mean, I don't know if you can say there's a right or wrong name or pronunciation for a character's name in a book. Um, in, in my mind, I was imagining it more as Bellinger. Oh, um, sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, Belanger, I mean, that works too. Or, I mean, I suppose if you're a French, yeah. you might, you yeah. know, put the accent somewhere else, you know, Belanger, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I blew that, yeah, that's, that's sure. <laughs> okay, so, but then, uh, you know, I, I don't think last time we talked to you, we didn't really get into your, your you know, PhD and academia and all that, and so that you actually do interact with students. And um, so I'm guessing that highly informed this book on some level. Yeah, um, to, to some extent, you know, I mean, I don't interact with students so much these days. I'm, I'm, prim, you know, a lot of my duties since I moved out to um, Yale have involved uh, primarily research. Um, cause that's a very competitive uh, place for, for teaching and they can get the best people in the world. And um, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's hard for me to kind of get, get some time at the podium there. But um, I've spent, you know, a lot of time, you know, with, you know, like obviously, you know, talking to with students uh, prior to going to Yale, and, uh, and I'm also just very interested in pop culture. I always have been, and I try to, uh, you know, keep up up to date on what's happening, uh, either through, you know, I, I, I watch you know the Academy Awards and the Grammys. I subscribe to Rolling Stone and things like that. I'm always on the web, so you know, fortunately. Uh, yeah, you know, just interacting with my readers, you know, who are people of all ages. You know, I, I try to you know, s stay in the loop, as it were. Yeah, and then so pop culture. What did you make of Back to the Future Day? Did you celebrate that? Um, I observed it. I think you know the there have been a series of false alarms on Facebook because people have been, you know, editing that, that famous picture from Back to the, to the Future and they've been posting, today is Back to the Future Day, and right. then you get to go to Snopes and say, nope, today's not the day. And I've just seen that dozens of times and, you know, this kind of false reality that Facebook kind of creates, you know, with, um, you know, gives you a little bit of skepticism about things. So it just kind of spoiled the fun of Back to the Future Day for me. But uh, I know a lot of my friends uh, out there and Facebook and other social media had lots of fun with it. But then did you fall for some of those previous Back to the Future Days? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've I've learned to be very skeptical of uh, everything on Facebook. I, I think my my favorite Back to the Future joke though was uh, a cartoon that was published that showed um, you know Marty and the Doc standing in front of a flyer for the new Star Wars movie, and Marty saying, "Oh, couldn't we have shown up two months later?" <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, so let's just dive into pop culture, though. This, you, the billionth monkey is dense. There, I mean, you have a website that explains some of these references, just so you can unpack the joke a little bit. Yeah, and I, and I hope it's not a matter of, you know, the joke that you have to explain isn't a funny joke. Um, but I think it is more, you know, I, what I'm doing with that website is I'm kind of going through the book a page at a time and kind of looking at references or, or in-jokes or other pop culture references or urban legends and just kind of explaining a bit about them. And it's not that, you know, people haven't heard the urban legend of, you know, the lover's lane, you know, murder with the hand, you know, hook hand. I mean, everyone's heard that, but, you know, it's an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit more about, well, what is that urban legend? Where does it come from? How has it shown up in pop culture? Exactly. So it's a it, it's a there's a a deeper level that you can choose to explore. It's definitely very meta. That's, that's yeah. I think I like the the lost footnotes, and and I, and I like the meta idea that that there's a, this you know the underlying concept of the book is how pop culture and social media and and our beliefs actually shape reality, and so to have the book kind of then showing up on social media and pop culture, you know, kind of becomes this neat sort of meta thing. And I've tried to do similar things by putting up uh, some some small micro sites um, related to things in the book as well. So, again, keeping on with that whole meta idea. Well, an example of this, you know, pop culture informing the book. So you're, the main character, whose name I was butchering, Niels ba Ballinger. Bell yes. Bellinger, <laughs> not Belanger. <laughs> um, hey, it's, it's, again, it's fiction. Who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe I've got it wrong. <laughs> but so, you know, when I think he's trying to explain his name to another character, they're they're saying Neil, like N-E-A-L, and he's like, no, this is Niels, and they're like, well, like Niels Bohr, and he's like, no, like Cornelius from Planet of the Apes. Exactly. Right. And so his parents named him after one of the monkeys from Planet of the Apes. Although he thought that the Niels, uh, Niels Bohr reference was a little bit more dignified. Well, and that's kind of where I, you know, like that's what I thought it was referring to as, as well. And the, and the other meaning of the name as, as Neil, no, not Neil, Niels actually becomes kind of an important joke later on in the book, too. So um, a lot of the names of the characters are chosen for very specific reasons. Yeah, and so on one level you can say that's, you know, poetry, you know, where you're playing with the density of a word. Mm -hmm. But then in, in our day and age you can also say it's sync, where different levels begin to resonate with each other, showing this kind of all-connected simultaneity. Would you agree with that on some level, potentially? Yeah, I think so. That's actually kind of kind of neat because there's there's a couple of things like that where there's there's these multiple references going on, and and um, you know again, I hadn't really thought about the the book itself as a kind of poetry. That's kind of that's kind of a cool thought, but also just that 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 synchronization and uh, you know just going back to the character's name Niels. I mean, the fact that it is his name his namesake is Cornelius from Planet of the Apes then becomes, you know, a reference, you know, one of the many recurring references to apes and monkeys throughout the book 
which then refers back to the title and then the kind of the underlying concept of the book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the book kind of starts um, with <laughs> with the quintessential urban legend actually being true. So Niels's advisor, or is that what is her role? Oh, you mean Destiny Jones? Not Destiny Jones. No, no. Oh, uh, oh, 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 her her boss, her the chairperson yeah. of, of her depart of, of of his department. Yes. And so she she uh, she got an email from someone in Nigeria, and all she had to do was send some money back, and she would get uh, five million dollars or something. And and it turns out that it wasn't a scam. And then she says. Um, You'd never think that, but I do have relatives in Nigeria, so it isn't all that implausible, I swear. Niels, you need to get your head out of the ivory tower. Forget, forget all those contemporary legends and see the world the way it really is. And so that's an interesting way to start because then this book is just littered with these references of things that we all know aren't true, but then you're making them true. Yeah, maybe they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, you know, the the snow cone or the that that story is that real? Is that based on a real story, or did you make that up for the book? You mean the whole ski incident? Ski incident. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That that is that is an urban legend as well. I mean, there's there's yeah. I mean, again, ever ever the the. Basically, my, my process of plotting out this book involved like going through you know collections of urban legends, making note cards, shuffling them around, and kind of finding the order that allowed me to tell the story arc that I wanted to tell, and then figuring out where these urban legends can be snuck in um, to at least you know help propel the story along, or in some cases just to be like a throwaway line. You know, um, you know, I think, you know, somewhere, you know, the, the character Destiny Jones just makes some comment about, oh, that's even, that's even weirder than that time I was caught naked in the laundry room wearing nothing but a football helmet. Right. And, and then that just moves on. But that is another very famous urban legend, you know, but it's just, it's like a one-liner and it, and it moves on. So sometimes they, they, it serves major plot points and sometimes they're just, they're there, they're just salted out, you know, throughout the book and, uh, greater or lesser portion, you know, right through the end. <laughs> and then I think I should mention to listeners that uh, Niels did his dissertation on urban legends, but was scooped by some other publication. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And so he didn't really get the import of his work was not really communicated to the population at large, which is too bad. Yeah, he was kind of an unsung hero other than to his fellow you know, uh, faculty members or his or his professors at the time who recognized his potential. So how many urban legends did you tackle in this book? Wow, I'm not sure I can even venture a guess, but there's probably at least 30, 40 of them uh, tucked away in the book. And then, I mean, the idea of even beginning to count the pop culture references would be... <laughs> I I I, can't, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of funny as I'm as I'm writing out the uh, the blog posts that kind of 
or kind of like the the hidden footnotes <laughs> to to the book. Um, better, I, by my estimation, by the time I get done doing that, it's going to be as long as the book itself. So uh, there's, there'll be a lot of fun for people who are interested in kind of getting a little bit more of the uh, story behind the story. Yeah. And then so, you know, we all know what Twitter is, which is microblogging, but Tweezer is nanoblogging. <laughs> Could you explain that to us? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the the... the um, social media is actually a, a big character in itself uh, in, in the, the story. And in fact, it was um, Facebook that kind of inspired the, the, the story in itself when um, a few years ago Facebook hit a billion users. You know, I was um, struck by just, you know, that's, that's a significant number of the population. And one thing I noticed getting into Facebook, I was encouraged by the publisher of Perderabo to uh, get into social media to help, you know, um, you know, promote the book and have some kind of presence there in social media, which I did. But, you know, what I tended to see on Facebook is that as I look through all my friends is that some of them believe some really weird stuff. <laughs> and, you know, and this was coming from a, a guy who believes some weird stuff himself. Uh, so I recognize that. But, um, you know, it really struck me that as I was watching my friend's feed or my news feed, you know, um, that I'd see these, you know, these echo chambers and these confirmation biases and these doubt merchants and, you know, people unfriending people who disagree with them. And, you know, what you wind up seeing are these people who kind of create these, these bubbles around themselves to kind of support and sustain their own narrative of what reality is. And I suppose for all of us, we, we do that to some extent or another, but it really struck me with Facebook and that was that in and of itself was kind of the uh you know inspiration for for going ahead with this this novel. Um but um at the same time I kinda like the idea of um things going to a short you know, communication going to a shorter and shorter sound bite. You know, in some ways I kind of miss the old live journal days where you could compose a post, you could you could format it, you could stick multiple pictures in and, and particular points in your post and it was more like like a blog and then with facebook you kind of you kind of lose some of that flexibility but you have all the other things that people like about facebook going along with it and then you've got you know twitter where you're limited to you know a certain number of characters so the idea of going from microblogging to nanoblogging i thought would be funny um and then so i created my own fictional um, like you know, nano blogging site called Tweezer, and you know Tweezer is kind of a play on Twitter, um, except I thought that you know Tweezers are for squeezing things, so it seemed to be a natural fit for the the sound bite that's even smaller than a Twitter sound bite. There we go. Yeah, and so then with that in mind, what are you making of this uh, moment we're in, politically speaking? You know, this combination of uh, the elections, it seemed like, if I remember right, I, I joined Facebook about the time that Obama was being inaugurated. I know that there were other people that adopted earlier, but now it really feels like this campaign is the era of social media in full bloom. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, absolutely. When you, when, you know, when you see that the Democratic debate, for instance, 
um, attracted a record audience. And people are trying to tease apart how much of that is due to the fact that people are really interested in what the, the Democratic contenders have to say and how many were watching it because Donald Trump was live tweeting it, you know, and you know, this, this, so that's what, again, that whole concept that Donald Trump is live tweeting the Democratic debate, so let's all watch. This <laughs> is, is kind of crazy. I mean, we've never, we've never seen that before. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting the way that social media is kind of tied into this. And I also often, you know, I mean, I, I guess I sit back more and I'm, I guess I'm more conscious of the idea that it seems like the, the media is basically generating a narrative and also kind of feeding a certain hysteria. It seems to me that when 9-11 happened, everyone was glued to their television for, for days, just watching and, and the news unfold. You know, there was even a South Park episode, you know, early on that made fun of this. Um, you know, that people didn't leave their house or, or bathe or anything. They were just glued to the television. And I think the 24-hour news channels kind of reached this point where they realized that, hey, if they keep the news interesting, they can keep people watching and then they can charge advertisers more. And so when, you know, you have airplane flights that disappear mysteriously, they can keep that story and that narrative interesting for 30, 40 days and keep people glued to their televisions. And uh, so I think you know, our media has learned to sensationalize everything. You know, you turn on CNN and every hour it's breaking news. And it's not always breaking, and it's not always news, but it's it's I think it's like very fair it's generating you know this viewership you know um and it's it's much less about reporting than it is about creating some sort of hype huh, yeah, okay, and so it's interesting because when i was when uh Niels is in New Orleans. And before the the adventure really beckons, um, there's a scene at a cafe that I thought that was that's in a book form is kind of fun, but then I wonder if it was translated to film how different that would be. And I, as I'm doing this interview, I'm I'm being aware of you know spoilers because I definitely want I think our listeners would um, appreciate this book and I think they should definitely check it out. So I'm, I'm tiptoeing around things, but uh, what, do you, what do you think of that thought? Um, well, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny because as I was writing this book, you know, and, and kind of talking about the next scene I'm working on, you know, my, my wife just kept laughing at me and saying, you know, you're not writing a book, you're writing a screenplay. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, um, and I don't know if that was really my, my intention, but, you know, I guess – you know the fact that it's what's happening is involved by by multimedia um, so you know so much that you know I would think um, in those terms. I mean, I think you know the, the the events of the prologue, you know, are very much picking up on you know perhaps you know if you're t- thinking about current events in in history, you know things are just burned into our collective consciousness. You know, the the events of 9-11 might be like the number one thing, but, you know, um, 
you know, the number two thing on the list kind of serves as a model for the prologue, you know. So it, it is very visual uh, because we've seen it on, on television, you know. And so there is this visual component. And, and so in the book, you actually wind up seeing, you know, screenshots of social media posts of one of the characters, you know, which, which I, I think is kind of a fun thing. I, don't think, I haven't really seen that in a, in a novel before, but it, uh, but it kind of harkens back to even like, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, where you've got, you know, excerpts from diaries and things like that as part of the narrative. But, but in this case, it's more visual. And then in the, with the novel, there's a, a comic book, you know, that I stuck in the back, you know. So definitely the visuals, you know, are, were part of it as I was writing the book. And, uh, and also to the extent I put together, again, as I mentioned, these, these micro sites uh, that kind of link to the book. So there's a visual component to those as, as well. So, so the comic book that comes with, or is that a joke in and of itself? It's, so if you go on your website, it says, also includes a five, six-page comic book Hamlet special ed- edition featuring so, so forth and so on. Now, does this comic book exist, or is this just part of the story? Oh, it's 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 part of the story. I mean, there there's like a website that that treats it as a a special preview coming out this Christmas, but that's all. Again, it's it's kind of a, a Star Wars Episode Seven pun, you know. So the the whole so the whole thing is we kind of get the 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 Hamlet and the, that classic metaphor of the monkeys on the typewriters, and, <laughs> and kind of ties into the billionth monkey idea, um, and and. But couched in pop culture references to Shakespeare's special, you know, I'm sorry, Shakespeare's George Lucas's special edition of, of Star Wars, and and how people, you know, would react to finding that, you know, what, how would they feel if they discovered that Shakespeare had altered a beloved classic of his? You know? But it's really all just an excuse to make a bunch of Star Wars jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was all excited because. The he's drawn hundreds of comic books, including Spider-Man, The Avengers, Legion of Superheroes, Power Man, and Iron Fist. In addition to his five-year run of the Flash, cover painting by Robert Randall, known blah 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 blah. But what really got my attention was the panels on the page are determined by the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching. How freaking cool is that? Oh, and that that actually refers to Robert Randall's um, graphic novel uh, serial artist, and that and that is. Really, really cool. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm a big fan of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, because the, the story is like 128 pages. So, um, you know, in his book, you know, so each two pages creates a, a hexagram. When you look at the whether uh, there's two panels or one per row, so it's it's a very very clever idea. Speaking of changing a beloved character, you know, like what George Lucas kind of did where he starts to alter the past by creating special editions and adding things. You know, Spielberg got into it, changed E.T. a little bit, but what right. do you make of the Go Tell a Watchman? Oh, it was you, too, that put together that great cover. What do you make of <laughs> <laughs> Go Tell a Watchman, or Go Set a Watchman? Right, right. What do you mean? Yeah, no, that so, so I kind of did a, a, a mashup of the, the comic book, The Watchmen, with that, you know. So yeah. what, what do I, what do I make? You know, it's, I thought the reaction with, with that was kind of interesting because, because people are, you know, having a hard time wrapping their, their heads around how Atticus Finch could be such a different character and how did he change from being this, 
you know, a really liberal thinking guy, you know, in in the original book to then being this this kind of you know prejudiced figure in in in, in the the, the follow up book. And to me, it's just like the one the one the book is a draft. From you know, they they have the characters have the same name, and that's it. You know, I mean, it's it's entirely possible that that you know Harper had completely re-envisioned the characters and there isn't necessarily a continuity between them. We're just reading two different stories by with some of the same names, that, you know, one of which is a beloved classic. So I, I personally don't have as hard a time wrapping my head around how they could be so different, you know, because I think it's just a function of what, what the book is, you know, which is a, 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 a early draft that out of, out of which you know her, her classic novel came. Back to the meta idea. So, as you you know this this comic that we're talking about in the in it's in the physical book, but then you say a long time ago in a kingdom far far away with a footnote, and then then you have seven footnotes, and each footnote has its own footnote that refers to the next, so you can keep the keep the jokes coming. Yeah, and then so then there's that's the homage. Uh, people, you know, in part it's an homage to Monty Python because the the because that's the credits at the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail with you know the boost you know the the, the, the moose bites, um, but in actuality that's also an homage to Aleister Crowley um, because in Crowley's book, The Sword of Song, he has this series of footnotes with a footnote on the footnote on the footnote on the footnote. And in fact, the very last footnote on that page is a direct quote, which is how Crowley ended his joke. Um, and so it's kind of like Crowley anticipated Monty Python, you know, 70 years ahead of, you know, <laughs> ahead of them doing that joke in Holy Grail. So I thought that was kind of cool to, to sneak the Crowley quote in there, too. Okay, and then the other thing about the billionth monkey that I, I'm finding interesting is, is uh, you know, if you just flip through it, you know, and you look at the, the tweezer tweets, or the tweezes, <laughs> <laughs> they go to some pretty interesting places. Um, Devil's Tower, they go to the Sidewinder. Sidewander, Colorado, and Roswell, New Mexico. You know what can readers expect from this this book? You know how can you entice them with those places? Well, yeah, part of part of the the road trip, um, and in this sense, I kind of feel like it's there, there's a you know I've, I've described the book as kind of being a mashup of you know Dan Brown and Neil Gaiman and Monty Python, you know, because you've got not only the humor and you've got these fantastical elements, but there's this this urgent, you know, solving the problem sort of situation that you often see and, and you know, which is underlying the Dan Brown books. And uh, in my version, I wanted to have them running around to locations of great pop culture significance. So, you know, the story starts in, in New Orleans, which, you know, has all kinds of resonances with pop culture. And then the places that you mentioned, you know, like like Devil's Tower and Sidewinder and and Roswell. Um, again, all all have you know very very uh, important references. You know, with with Devil's Tower being in Close Encounters, 
you know, Sidewinder is linking up to, you know, uh, Stephen King's novel, The Shining, and, you know, Roswell being connected with, you know, probably the, the biggest um, urban legend conspiracy theory, you know, whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's certainly a, a huge piece of, of pop culture. So um, kind of involving all of those locations was very much part of, you know, my plotting process. Um, and I suppose I take kind of some some pleasure in that and, and in the idea that things that you might expect to happen in those locations are not the things that happen, you know. So um, it's I, I hope uh, it's, I, I manage to keep readers guessing, you know, even as they're going to these uh, rather famous locations. Can you get any of these T-shirts or sweatshirts with the famous colleges on them? No, you know, I had thought about doing that, and um, because I, I actually have put up a uh, a site where you can get um, going back to the, the the Hamlet jokes, you can actually get Hamstead with first T-shirts and mugs and stuff. And I was going to do that with the uh, some of the colleges as well. I thought that would be funny, but I just you know there was, there was only so much time I could put into kind of these online things that were that were you know again easter eggs for the the book and uh there was just you know there's only so much time i could put i mean i you know, don't know how many people are actually going to discover all these things i guess they might they might if they read the blog you know but uh how, how many of them would discover it on their own so you know i just would i just had to draw the line somewhere and uh and so even though I had drafted a couple of them up, I think I put one of the, the seals up in my blog recently for one of the schools. Um, I kind of gave up. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have... And also, I'm not, I'm not really a great graphic designer yeah, either, so you know, there's also the limits of like what the pocketbook allows. Well, speaking of, the, the actual cover of the book is pretty sharp. Um, I really like the Mind Master. Did, did you have help with that then? Oh yeah, yeah. I've got a, a, a friend of mine, Aaron Tatum, who um, works as digital pair, has done uh, covers for uh, a few of my a few of my books. I just love what he does. Um, you know, it's just he has this uncanny ability to for me to kind of give him something, and you know, he'll turn around something that's like first draft is like right on. And in fact, you know, he came back with um, the the Mind Master. And his email to me was like, I don't, I'm not sure where this came from, but this is the thing that occurred to me. Did you say something about that? And I said, no, but I love it. <laughs> um, you know, the one, one thing I had wanted to do was to have some tiny pictures or references of how to refer events in the book. Um, and it's kind of uh, an allusion to how the artist Mark Wilkinson does album covers for the band Marillion, where the artwork contains references to all the lyrics. Uh, but I just couldn't think of a way of making that happen. And then when Aaron came back with this Mind Master thing with his view disc, I thought, oh my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> so, you know, where, where the idea came from, it, he plucked it out of the ether, but it was something that just miraculously worked, and it was basically his, his first draft. I mean, we, we tweaked it a little bit, but, you know, that's that was his his concept first draft, and I was just astonished. <laughs> well, yeah, it's another meta representation of the like fractally breaking the information down to another level, but it's still all there. 
That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what what what's next for you? Do you have are you going to work on more fiction or nonfiction or do you have anything in the works? Um, I've got several things in the works. Um, you know, I I've always loved writing fiction. That was the first kind of writing I've done since you know I was like in second grade. But um, it just wound up that professionally, um, a lot of my work has led me to writing nonfiction, and then you know writing things like Perdurabo and Forgotten Templars and so on um, have kind of planted me in that realm. So it was really nice to get back to doing fiction again. And that's something I want to continue doing, but I certainly haven't lost my love of nonfiction. And I've got a couple of projects, you know, um, that I'm that are going to be coming out soon, um, or I'm in the process of wrapping up. Um, I've uh, contributed an essay to a a book that's coming out from Freehands Press, dealing with uh, the archetype of Babylon in Thelemic magic. Um, I'm working on a anthology of really early writings by the poet um, Victor Neuberg and the military thinker J.F.C. Fuller, both of whom uh, became friends of Aleister Crowley. But I found these essays that they, that they were writing just before they met Crowley. So it kind of gives some insight into their worldview and what it is that they might have found that they had in common with Crowley, that you know, they, they would form for friendships. And most of the stuff has never been published before or republished because they originally appeared in like these obscure little, you know, free thought journals uh, of of the of the era, and um, some stuff like that. And there's, you know, I've, I aspire someday to write like a real big research book on uh, sacred sexuality and Western esotericism. But after writing Forgotten Templars, which was a huge undertaking, I kind of feel like I'm wanted to take a break and write some smaller, easier books <laughs> before I tackle that one. Okay, so, uh, and then I'm sure all our listeners are dying to know how Richard Kaczynski spends Halloween. Do you dress up and go trick-or-treating, or you have the yard all fixed up and you have kids trick-or-treat you? Um, we do, do a little bit of both. Um, we like to you know, decorate up the yard and, you know, I put up the pumpkin carvings I do each year um, and hand up the candy. But at the same time, we like to kind of go out and, you know, wander the neighborhood and have a chance to see how the rest of the neighborhood, you know, decks up, you know, and celebrates Halloween and kind of be out there with everyone. Um, and kind of kind of bringing us full circle. I remember one year walking around and um, just kind of just wearing a long black coat, you know, just to be, to be warm. And uh, as I, I walked up behind a, a, a group of, of young ladies who were having a great time, and then they turned around and saw me, and they screamed and screamed and screamed. And then one of them looked at me and said, are you Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was funny, that Shakespeare should evoke such a response. But, uh, <laughs> definitely some people are, find Shakespeare to be a little bit scarier than I do. <laughs> that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me on. You bet. You've been listening to Richard Kaczynski on ThinkBook Radio, production of thethinkbook.com. Information about the work of Dr. Kaczynski can be found at his website, thebilliantmonkey.com. For more information about the ThinkBook, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, uh, consider becoming a member. Some of the membership benefits include full access the complete audio archive, discounts on books, 
behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And what you are saying is that the thesis, full of theses, has a pre-thesis that is pure. Indeed. <laughs> Could have said better myself. Jersey.